Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Have you seen this before? This is the first time I'm seeing it. This is the world's first look at what's left of the target that was blasted last month in a history-making fusion reaction. An artifact like Bell's first phone or Edison's light bulb. The explosion on the end of this was hotter than the sun. It was hotter than the center of the sun. A poet once described Cyprus as a golden green leaf thrown into the sea. The island, just 140 miles long, is wrapped in sandy beaches and a rich history. These turquoise waters, according to legend, were the birthplace of Aphrodite. But today, the playground of the gods has become a place to hide billions for sanctioned Russian oligarchs with ties to Vladimir Putin. He's produced for Johnny Cash, Jay-Z, and Adele. He certainly doesn't look like a record executive. I'm here with the live room. And as we found out, Rick Rubin doesn't think like one either. The audience comes last. How can that be? Well, the audience doesn't know what they want. The audience only knows what's come before. Isn't the whole music business built around trying to figure out what somebody likes? Maybe for someone else it is, but it's not for me. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories and more tonight on 60 Minutes. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, 
the coldest case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Last month, the nearest star to the Earth was in California. In a laboratory for the first time, the world's largest lasers forced atoms of hydrogen to fuse together in the same kind of energy-producing reaction that fires the sun. It lasted less than a billionth of a second, but after six decades of toil and failure, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory proved it could be done. If fusion becomes commercial power one day, it would be endless and carbon-free. In other words, it would change human destiny. As you'll see, there's far to go, but after December's breakthrough, we were invited to tour the lab and meet the team that brought star power down to Earth. Uncontrolled fusion is easy. Mastered so long ago, the films are in black and white. Fusion is what a hydrogen bomb does, releasing energy by forcing atoms of hydrogen to fuse together. What's been impossible is harnessing the fires of Armageddon into something useful. The U.S. Department of Energy's Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory helps maintain nuclear weapons and experiments with high-energy physics. An hour east of San Francisco, we met Livermore's director, Kim Budell, in the lab that made history, the National Ignition Facility. The National Ignition Facility is the world's largest, most energetic laser. It was built starting in the 1990s to create conditions in the laboratory that had previously only been accessible in the most extreme objects in the universe, like the center of giant planets or the sun, or in operating nuclear weapons. And the goal was to really be able to study that kind of very high energy, high density condition in a lot of detail. The National Ignition Facility, or NIF, was built for three and a half billion dollars to ignite self-sustaining fusion. They tried nearly 200 times over 13 years, but like a car with a weak battery, the atomic engine would never turn over. NIF drew some nicknames. It did. Uh, for many years, the not-ignition facility, the never-ignition facility, uh, more recently the nearly-ignition facility. So uh, this recent event has really put the ignition in the NIF. Ignition means igniting a fusion reaction that puts out more energy than the lasers put in. 
So if you can get it hot enough, dense enough, fast enough, and hold it together long enough, the fusion reactions start to self-sustain. And that's really what happened here on December 5th. Main laser operation will begin in approximately one minute. Last month, the laser shot fired from this control room put two units of energy into the experiment, atoms began fusing, and about three units of energy came out. Tammy Ma, who leads the lab's laser fusion research initiatives, got the call while waiting for a plane. And I burst into tears. It was just tears of joy. And I actually physically started shaking and, and jumping up and down in, in, you know, at the gate before everybody boards. So everybody was like, what is that crazy woman doing? Tammy Ma is crazy about engineering. Um, and that's another one of our sensors. For she our showed us why the problem of fusion would bring anyone to tears. First, there's the energy required, which is delivered by lasers in these tubes that are longer than a football field. And how many are there altogether? 192 total lasers. Each one of these lasers is one of the most energetic in the world, and you have 192 of them. That's pretty cool, right? Well, pretty hot, actually. Millions of degrees, which is why they use keys to lock up the lasers. Shot directed, ready. The beams strike with a power 1,000 times greater than the entire national power grid. Three, two, one, shot. Your lights don't go out at home when they take a shot because these capacitors store the electricity in the tubes, the laser beams amplify by racing back and forth, and the flash is a fraction of a second. We have to get to these incredible conditions, hotter, denser than the center of the sun, and so we need all of that laser energy to get to these very high energy densities. All that wallop vaporizes a target nearly too small to see. Can I hold this thing? Absolutely. Let it go, and there we go. Unbelievable. Absolutely amazing. Michael Staterman's team builds the hollow target shells that are loaded with hydrogen at 430 degrees below zero. The precision that we need for making these shells is extreme. The shells are almost perfectly round. Uh, they have a roughness that is 100 times better than a mirror. You think about that, uh... If it wasn't smoother than a mirror, imperfections would make the implosion of atoms uneven, causing a fusion fizzle. So these need to be as close to perfect as humanly possible. This way. This way. And we do think there are among the most perfect items that we have on Earth. Staterman's lab pursues perfection by vaporizing carbon and forming the shell out of diamond. They build 1,500 a year to make 150 nearly perfect. All the components are brought together under the microscope itself, and then the assembler uses electromechanical stages to put the parts where they're supposed to go, uh, move them together, and then we apply glue using a hair. A hair? Yeah, usually something like an eyelash or a similar, or a cat whisker. You Apply glue with a cat whisker? This way. Why does it have to be so small? The laser gives us only a finite amount of energy, 
and um, to drive a bigger capsule, we would need more energy. So it's a constraint of the facility that you've seen that is very large. And despite its big size, this is about what we can drive with it. The target could be larger, but then the laser would have to be larger that as well. Correct. On December 5th, they used a thicker target so it would hold its shape longer and they figured out how to boost the power of the laser shot without damaging the lasers. So this is an example of a target before the shot. So Tammy Ma showed us an intact target assembly. That diamond shell you saw is inside that silver-colored cylinder. This assembly goes into a blue vacuum chamber three stories tall. It's hard to see here because it's bristling with lasers and instruments. This instrument they call Dante because they told us it measures the fires of hell. One physicist said, you should see the target we blasted December 5th, which made us ask, could we? Have you seen this before? This is the first time I'm seeing it. For Tammy Ma and for the world, this is the first look at what's left of the target assembly that changed history. An artifact like Bell's first phone or Edison's light bulb. This thing is going to end up in the Smithsonian. The target cylinder was blasted to oblivion. The copper support that held it was peeled backward. The explosion on the end of this was hotter than the sun. It was hotter than the center of the sun. We were able to achieve temperatures that were the hottest in the entire solar system. Which would make an astronomical change in electric power. Unlike today's nuclear plants, which split atoms apart, fusing them is many times more powerful with little long-term radiation. And it's easy to turn off, so no meltdowns. But getting from the first ignition to a power plant will be hard. How many shots do you take in a day? We take, on average, uh, a little more than one shot per day. If this was theoretically a commercial power plant, how many shots a day would be required? Approximately 10 shots per second would be required. And the other big challenge, of course, is not just increasing the repetition rate, but also getting the gain out of the targets to go up to about a factor of 100. Not only would the reactions have to produce 100 times more energy, but a power plant would need 900,000 perfect diamond shells a day. Also, the lasers would have to be much more efficient Remember December's breakthrough put two units of energy in and got three out? Well, it took 300 units of power to fire the lasers. By that standard, it was 300 in, three out. That detail was not front and center at the Department of Energy's December news conference, which fused the advance with an unlikely timeline. Today's announcement it's a huge step forward uh, to the president's goal of achieve, achieving commercial fusion within a decade. When you heard that President Biden's goal was commercial fusion power in a decade, you thought what? I thought it was nonsense. Charles Seif is a trained mathematician, science author, and professor at New York University 
who wrote a 2008 book on the hyping of fusion power. I don't want to diminish the fact that this is a real achievement. Um, ignition is a milestone that people have been trying for, to do for years. I'm afraid that there are so many technical hurdles, even after this great achievement, uh, that 10 years is a pipe dream. Those hurdles, Seif says, include scaling up Livermore's achievement. The December shot generated about enough excess power to boil two pots of coffee. The hurdles might be overcome, Seif says, but not soon. I have a running bet going that uh, we're not going to have it by 2050. Still, betting against Charles Seif's prophecy are more than 30 private companies designing various approaches to fusion power, including using magnets, not lasers. $3 billion in private money flowed into those companies in the last 13 months, including bets by Bill Gates and Google. Amid all this speculation, Lawrence Livermore's director, Kim Budell, is certain of one thing. Can you do it again? Absolutely. They're going to try again next month. Budell agrees the obstacles are enormous, but she told us commercial fusion power could be demonstrated in 20 years or so with enough funding and dedication. We likened the first ignition to the first Wright Brothers flight, which covered only 120 feet. It's one thing to believe uh, that the science is possible, uh, that the conditions can be created. Uh, it's another to see it in action. And it really is a remarkable feeling after working for 60 years to get to this point, um, to have first taken that first flight. It was 44 years from a puddle jump to supersonic flight. Whether fusion power is 10 or 50 years away, is now mainly an engineering problem. Lawrence Livermore has proven that from a machine, a star is born. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. After Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. and its allies responded with sanctions targeting companies, oligarchs, and officials with ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin. Headlines trumpeted the trophies of Russian oligarchs seized throughout Europe, yachts in Italy, villas in the south of France, and priceless art in Germany. But those fixed assets are relatively easy to locate. 
Finding the billions of dollars oligarchs have stashed around the world is proving to be more difficult. How do you hide that much money from an international community that says it's determined to find it? The question led us to Cyprus, a tiny Mediterranean island at the crossroads of Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Today, the once-bustling vacation spot is in the middle of an international game of hide-and-seek. A poet once described Cyprus as a golden green leaf thrown into the sea. The island, just 140 miles long, is wrapped in sandy beaches and a rich history. These turquoise waters, according to legend, were the birthplace of Aphrodite. But today, the playground of the gods has become a playland for wealthy Russians. We headed down the southern coast of the island to Limassol. Before the war, it was a favorite spot for Russians to thaw. A three-hour flight from Moscow, Limassol's mix of designer shops, first stores, Cyrillic signs, and stores serving caviar earned it the nickname Moscow on the Med. But Alexandra Atalides, a member of the Cyprus parliament, says after the fall of the Soviet Union, the oligarchs who descended on the island weren't here for the beaches. There are beautiful beaches in Spain, in Portugal, in Greece. There are a lot of beautiful beaches. I think that they found a fertile ground here that helped them. How did the Russian oligarchs use Cyprus? After 1989, when they stole the property of the Russian people, and they started to build their empires. And then maybe they were afraid that someday something will happen, so they wanted their assets to be saved outside Russia. So they were looking for tax havens, and we had a very low tax rate at that time. They got a place to hide their assets. Yeah. Cyprus historically uh, built a financial system to attract overseas wealth. Myra Martini is an analyst for Transparency International, a nonprofit that tracks money laundering around the world. She says for decades, if you were an oligarch or just a shady character looking to hide your rubles, Cyprus was hard to beat. It offers the secrecy and still security. And that's what uh, criminals and corrupt individuals are usually looking for. What do you mean it offers secrecy? So in Cyprus, for many years, you could open a bank account without having a lot of questions asked. You can open a company without having a lot of questions asked, meaning you can put the money there without needing to tell who you are, where the money comes from. Cyprus became as famous for its opaque banking as its clear water. Soon, like sun-starved tourists, foreign money started pouring into the island. By 2012, the country of about a million residents had amassed bank deposits of nearly 72 billion euros. About 30 percent of those bank deposits came from Russian nationals. But in 2013, the tide turned. The debt crisis in neighboring Greece threatened to sink the Cyprus economy. Lawmakers, fearing the country would lose all that Russian capital, pushed a scheme other countries had used to attract wealth a citizenship by investment program. From the beginning, for me, this was unacceptable. Here's how it worked. Any foreigner who invested more than 2 million euros in the country, typically buying real estate, could get a Cypriot passport, a coveted possession because Cyprus is part of the European Union. So the people who are buying the passport of Cyprus, they were buying the European passport. They were buying an open door to 27 countries. 
From 2013 to 2020, Cyprus issued almost 7,000 of those golden passports, nearly half to Russians. Suddenly, the skyline of Limassol was injected with high-rise luxury apartments, its port with mega yachts, and its stores with uber-wealthy Russians. You could see them walking around like princesses, moving in the most expensive shops. They have their business, they have their houses, they have luxury houses. But in 2020, an undercover investigation by Al Jazeera revealed corruption in the passport program. No passport Cyprus had illegally issued hundreds of golden passports, some to criminals and fugitives. After protests and under pressure from the EU, the Cyprus government shuttered the program weeks later. But the passports were still out there. When you give passports to people that later we realize that they are criminals, then you open the door of Europe to criminals. The golden passports also open the door of Europe to Russian elites. 60 Minutes has learned that at least a dozen of these now-sanctioned Russian oligarchs were issued golden passports. Among them, Igor Kaseyev, who owned a Russian arms factory. Billionaire Alexander Ponomarenko, who was the chairman of the board of Russia's biggest airport and who the U.S. government calls one of Putin's enablers. And aluminum tycoon Oleg Deripaska, part of Putin's inner circle. According to the U.S. Treasury, he's been investigated internationally for, among other things, money laundering, illegal wiretapping and extortion, accusations he denies. You could set up Myra Martini told us a Cypriot passport could make it easier for those sanctioned oligarchs to buy property and move assets, and that the cozy relationship between wealthy Russians and Cyprus is raising concern internationally. If you are a small country that is very dependent on foreign money coming from one single country, this also even may create a, a conflict conflict, right? Really, sanctions are only as strong as the weakest link. Is Cyprus the weakest link here? I think Cyprus is one of the weakest links. Cyprus Minister of Finance, Konstantinos Petridis, disagrees. We first spoke to him in September. His office oversees efforts to freeze the Cyprus assets of anyone sanctioned by the EU. Who has been sanctioned, specifically individuals within Cyprus? Regarding the citizenship, I think about 10 people were found uh, under restrictive measures. And the Council of Ministers has initiated a process to revoke uh, their passports. The 10 people that have been sanctioned, yeah. who are they? I don't have any, uh, any names uh, now. But would you be able to provide us with that list of names if we asked for it? I'm not sure. I would have to, I would have to see it. We sent Minister Petridis a request for those names and the list of any assets of sanctioned Russians that Cyprus has seized or frozen. In a series of emails over the last three months, Petridis' office responded that due to European data protection rules, no detailed list can be made public. But other EU countries have publicized detailed lists of their actions. So is the expectation that everyone should just trust the Cyprus government that they're implementing the sanctions that they're supposed to on Russians? Uh, I'm not saying that everybody should trust the Cyprus government. The Cyprus government does not need somebody to trust it. We have the reports of the mutual assessment for Cyprus 2019 that shows all the progress made in the past years. I think that we have proved 
uh, as Cyprus that we are a reliable member of the, of the EU. We do admit that in the past there have been mistakes, mm-hmm. but Cyprus has also been unfairly stigmatized. Petridis told us the passports of sanctioned oligarchs are in the process of being revoked and said Cyprus has seized 105 million euros of Russian deposits. A big number, but just a fraction of the estimated 5.6 billion euros of Russian deposits made in Cyprus last year. We also asked Minister Petridis about this. The dozens of Cyprus properties and active shell companies we were able to trace back to sanctioned Russians. He told us any Cypriot company with an EU-sanctioned oligarch listed as the owner has been placed under increased scrutiny. But often, Russian oligarchs don't list their names anywhere near their assets. Take the case of Roman Abramovich and his planes. According to U.S. investigators, they were hidden under five shell companies stacked like Russian nesting dolls, with addresses in the BVI and British Island of Jersey, all leading to an anonymous trust in Cyprus. But it wasn't Cyprus authorities who ultimately moved to seize the planes. It was prosecutors from the U.S. Department of Justice. There's always been dark corners of the international financial system uh, and kind of like water finding a crack. That's where the criminal networks will go. U.S. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco is in charge of the Department of Justice's klepto-capture unit, tasked with finding the assets of sanctioned oligarchs hidden around the world. It used to be, you know, the guy fleeing with suitcases of money. That's not the case anymore. It is not. It is crypto. It is planes. It is yachts. It is layered. And so how do you keep up with it? Even the most notorious actors, whether it's the mafia, Mm -hmm. whether it's rogue regimes, the best tool we have is following the money. The money has led DOJ investigators around the world and closer to home. It turns out, like the tourists who visit Cyprus, dirty money doesn't stay on the island forever. Typically, it's washed and invested in other Western economies. Investigators say that's one way Oleg Deripaska has been able to skirt sanctions. What the task force exposed was the uh, network of enablers and money launderers and facilitators who helped him hide his wealth in real estate here in Washington, D.C. and in Manhattan. In the United States. In the United States. In artwork. In vanity businesses, including a music studio in Beverly Hills. In their case, the DOJ alleges that in 2020, Oleg Deripaska arranged for one of his children to be born in the United States, even though he was under U.S. sanctions. He has a child that's a U.S. citizen now? He was able to do that in one instance, and then in the second instance, uh, that was not accomplished. Because U.S. Customs stopped it. The government case details how, as the war in Ukraine intensified, Deripaska used a Cyprus company to arrange travel on a private jet from Russia to Los Angeles for his pregnant girlfriend, moving money to rent a home for her in Beverly Hills. But when she landed in Los Angeles this summer, she was stopped by customs officers. Deripaska, his girlfriend, and the U.S. resident who helped him are now charged with sanctions evasion. They are not in custody, but the DOJ has announced plans to seize his U.S. properties worth an estimated $70 million. 
Since the start of the war, the U.S. has moved to seize more than a billion dollars of sanctioned assets around the world. So what should happen to those assets? We are seeking the authority from Congress to allow us to use the proceeds for the benefit of the Ukrainian people. Oleg Deripaska has publicly criticized the economic impact the war in Ukraine could have on Russia. But U.S. investigators maintain he is a Putin crony who is propping up Russia's war machine. Back in Cyprus, 60 Minutes found a villa in this seaside complex, offices in this building, and more than a dozen active shell companies linked to Oleg Deripaska. The Cyprus government will not say whether it has frozen any of those assets. Rick Rubin is one of the most talented music producers of his generation and certainly one of the most interesting. At 59, he's worked with just about every top recording artist across all genres. In an industry geared toward churning out hits, Rubin's focus is on feelings and helping artists get in touch with their musical selves. If that sounds somewhat mystical, that's just fine with Rick Rubin. After all, his storied studio in California is named Shangri-La and he's been called the guru by more than a few of the artists he's worked with. In fact, before our interview even began, Ruben crossed his legs, closed his eyes, and then suggested we do the same. Should we spend two minutes uh, eyes closed meditating before we start, just to like really get here? Sure, Let's do that. That's a first. Nice. Does meditation help you creatively? It clears the distractions. Say the distractions can get in the way with a direct connection to the creative force. Rick Rubin is definitely in tune with his creative force. Over the last four decades, he's produced albums and songs with more than 120 artists. But just keep them really simple. Bottom. Thinking maybe we start a cappella. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. He's helped launch careers, LL Cool J and Public Enemy among them. And is often the go to guy for artists at the top of their game, like Adele. But exactly what he does and how is difficult to describe. Do you play instruments? Barely. Do you know how to work a soundboard? No. I have no technical ability. And I know nothing about music. (laughs) You must know something. Well, I know what I like and what I don't like. And I'm, I'm decisive about what I like and what I don't like. So what are you being paid for? The confidence that I have in my taste and my ability to express what I feel has proven helpful for artists. Artists are eager to make the pilgrimage to Shangri-La Studios in Malibu to work with Ruben. How many studios do you have here? There's the main control room here with the live room. The place is minimalist, to say the least. There's no mirrors, no TVs, no signs of Rick Rubin's extraordinary success. I've never been in a recording studio where there's not gold records and Grammys. Do you have like a tiny ego room somewhere? I don't. I I used to send them all to my parents, and (laughs) I don't know where they are now. 
It's a distraction. If you start thinking about doing something to achieve that, then you're not focused on this making this beautiful thing. It undermines the purity of the project. We're going back to the key and we're going back to the tempo. Ruben has referred to himself as a reducer instead of a producer. I like the idea of getting the point across with the least amount of information possible. And that's what you're doing in a recording studio. You're listening to music, to sound, and trying to strip it. Just see what's, what is actually necessary. Getting it down to that essence to start with is really helpful in understanding what it is. On our first day, he brought us in on a jam session with saxophone great Kamasi Washington. What are you listening for? Like right now, there's what, chimes, piano? Yeah, I'm not listening to any of those things. <laughs> okay. What are you listening to? I'm listening to the feeling. How do you listen to a feeling? Well, my body's moving. I feel that melody awaken something in me. There's something familiar about it, but I don't think I've heard it before. The feeling of familiarity is a good feeling. So if you haven't noticed by now, Rick Rubin talks a lot about feelings. My aim is not to have my presence felt, <laughs> unless it's necessary, unless it's helpful. His presence is laid back, literally. He usually listens lying down and barefoot with his eyes shut. You might think he was napping. I try to listen as closely as I possibly can. And when my eyes are closed, I feel like I'm there with the music. It may not seem like work, but Ruben hears things and senses things other producers don't. Back in 1993, a few stray guitar chords on a Tom Petty demo tape caught his attention. Tom sent me demos of about five new songs. And none of them really struck me, honestly. None of them spoke to me. But that guitar riff that opens a song was something that was played between two of the songs, just like a, like a warm-up. I drove to Tom's house, and I played it for him. I said, listen to this piece. I feel like this is the best thing on the tape. Write this one. And that turned into Last Dance with Mary Jane. That's got to be hard, though, and you come back saying, you know, I like the thing that happened accidentally in between two of these songs. That's a tough sell sometimes, isn't it? I'm not trying to sell it. <laughs> I'm just sharing what I'm feeling, you know? Like, if they don't want to do it, it's fine. Ruben is now sharing what he's learned in a book, The Creative Act, A Way of Being, out this week. It's his guide to harnessing creativity, something he figured out how to do his sophomore year at New York University in 1982. His parents wanted him to be a lawyer, but Ruben had another idea. You decide the dorm is going to be the studio. It's going to be the DJ booth, drum machine, pre-production music area. Yes. <laughs> did your roommate have any say in that? He didn't, but he loved it. He was going out every night. He wasn't into booze or drugs, he says. The music is what drew him, and hip-hop was just starting to make some noise. What was it about hip-hop that attracted you, this kid from Long Island at NYU? It wasn't made by people who went to the music conservatory. It was made by kids who felt something. You know it's like but the few hip-hop records Ruben could get his hands on didn't sound like what he heard in the clubs. 
in a hip hop club, the music was made by the DJ scratching records or playing breakbeats or using drum machines or some combination. And then there would be a rapper or a group of rappers. And the records that came out were always a, a band playing. And that wasn't what, to me, what hip hop was. So Ruben persuaded rapper Tila Rock and DJ Jazzy J to let him produce a record that captured the way they sounded live. It's yours. The stripped-down sound got noticed, and Ruben teamed up with music manager Russell Simmons. You had a meeting in your dorm room. I had all my meetings at the dorm room. I met with Run DMC at the dorm room. I met, I met with everybody at the dorm room. That dorm became the headquarters for Def Jam Recordings. Did New York University know that you were operating not just a side hustle, like that you were operating a business out of the school? Eventually it became an issue because over time, as Def Jam grew, the entire mailroom was filled with boxes of records to be shipped out. His senior year, Ruben was working with Run DMC, the Beastie Boys, and a teenage LL Cool J. And after he graduated, Def Jam landed a seven-figure distribution deal with Columbia Records. Ruben was always looking for new talent. He heard a jingle from a college radio show and tracked down the rapper Chuck D who wrote it and convinced him to sign with Def Jam. That's how the groundbreaking group Public Enemy got started. What kind of an impact do you think Rick had on hip-hop? Rick, Rick Rubin is one of the pillar stones of hip-hop. He didn't pioneer the production. He didn't pioneer the rap. But he pioneered a certain energy for it to be daring. Rubin left Def Jam in 1988 and set up shop in California. Producing Slayer and other heavy metal bands and well-established artists. Johnny Cash credited him with reviving his career. The first time I got seen was at a dinner theater in, in Orange County. It just seemed like the world had passed him by, and he believed the world had passed them by. Ruben looked around for lyrics that would suit the man in black. He picked a Nine Inch Nails song called Hurt. Cash made it his own. I hurt myself today. To see if I still feel. Wow, that's her. That's incredible. It sounded honest. It's brutally honest. It's brutally honest. It's brutally honest. Hurt became one of Johnny Cash's most popular songs, and over the course of a decade, they made seven albums together. He shows up in all these different genres and helps the real sound of those genres emerge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rick Rubin had always been a little Bruce Lee Zen-ish. I can't teach you, but I can help you explore yourself, that type of thing. Chuck D, like the rest of us, is still trying to figure out exactly how Rick Rubin does what he does. Yo, Anderson, Rick was on the couch, and I was wondering, we were in the booth, I'm wondering, is he asleep or awake or what? <laughs> and then makes a couple of suggestions. Boom, 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 boom. And sure enough, it unfolds itself and like, ah... Dude, just, he just did some Rick Rubin shit to us. <laughs> we watched him do that with pop singer Kesha. I think we should double that one. Whatever you like. Let's hear it. One. She was recording with the gospel choir.
Rick, what do you think? If we want to put it into the song, we could chop it up. Soon. This was her first time being guided by the guru. Working with him has been genuinely life-changing. He gave me, like, homework assignments. What homework assignments? <laughs> I was writing a song, and I couldn't articulate what I needed to say. And he was like, go home and write a full essay about everything you need to say until you can't write anymore. And then the song kind of started forming itself. So he's not saying, let's make a gold record that's going to do this in sales. God, no. And he was like, I just want to make good music. And I was like, that's so crazy. The audience comes last. How can that be? Well, the audience doesn't know what they want. The audience only knows what's come before. Isn't the whole music business built around trying to figure out what somebody likes? Maybe for someone else it is, but it's not for me. Making music is, of course, a business. But whether he's working with Malian singer Umu Sangare, Kesha, or Johnny Cash, Rick Rubin insists for him it's always been a deeply emotional pursuit. We're trying to tap into a feeling. We're trying to tap into something that makes you want to lean forward and pay more attention. And I'm giving cues to look for in yourself because it all has to do with the artist. But I mean, that does sound very spiritual. It is. No, it is. The whole thing is spiritual. It is magic. And you don't want somebody who's listening to music to think, oh, that's a Rick Rubin record. No. No, I want them to say, this is the best thing I've ever heard and not know why. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. At Amica Insurance... We know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Tonight, an update on a story called Counting the Vote, which we broadcast after the 2020 election. Bill Whitaker looked at how Pennsylvania election officials averted ballot box chaos during COVID amid legal challenges, White House accusations, and physical threats from Donald Trump supporters. Al Schmidt, Philadelphia's lone Republican election commissioner, called the turmoil deranged. Calls to our offices reminding us that... um, This is what the Second Amendment is for. People like us. You're getting calls like that? Yes. That's a not-so-veiled death threat. Yes. For counting votes in a democracy. Ten days ago, Al Schmidt received the Presidential Citizens Medal in a White House ceremony. And Pennsylvania's incoming Democratic governor, Josh Shapiro, has named Republican Schmidt the state's top election official, Secretary of the Commonwealth. 
I'm Anderson Cooper. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.